legacy of that shield is complicated. AM 1600 KIVA, rockoftalk.com. I'm Eddie Aragon, The Rock of Talk, with me, Dr. William Summers. This is our special Christmas edition and New Year's edition for Life Imagined. And as always, we know that uh, Dr. Summers has been here putting on these very, very special programs uh, for all of us, uh, which have become literally the focal point of the last four years of uh, shows for Summers. And um, or for the last years, uh, and Dr. Summers has been doing it all. So, Dr. Summers, I appreciate what you do uh, for the community. I appreciate what you've been doing to help a lot of people who are sick and uh, providing a way out and uh, even risking your own personal uh, self, uh, your license, etc., and everything like that. So we just want to thank you for the sacrifices that you make on behalf of Kiva listeners. Thank you, Eddie. And we're glad you, the listener, are here today. Now, today the show will explore the meaning, texture, and evolution of the root of Christmas, Christ Mass, or the Mass of Christ, the celebration which recalls the wisdom, the acts, and the, ev- the evolving impact of Jesus of Nazareth's life on history. He is the man who split time into B.C. and A.D. Now, I have no formal theology or history training, so what follows is my perspective with the inspiration of the Holy Christmas Spirit. Christmas is celebrated by 96% of Americans. It is a major holiday. The word is derived from an old English phrase, Christus Masse, first recorded in 1038, which means the celebration of the Mass of Christ. Actually, Jesus is Greek because his real name in Hebrew was Joshua which means Yahweh is salvation, Yahweh delivers, or Yahweh rescues. Now, Mass refers to the religious celebration called the Eucharist, which encapsulates the core beliefs of Christianity that Christ was fully a deity and fully a human, and surrendered his human life in a most painful manner as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of his believers. This gift is not earned, It is a gift of grace. Now, the term Mass comes from the Latin phrase that closes this ceremony. It's a mista est. It is dismissed, or it is finished, or in Greek, telestai. Now, tradition holds that Christmas, December 25th, is the day on which Jesus was born. This is nine months after the Annunciation of the conception of Jesus on March 25th. But the New Testament does not give the date of the birth of Jesus. One could get lost in the arguments as to the actual birthday of Christ, but this misses the point. The Christians have been celebrating this since the year 800, over 1,200 years. Christ established a most, most unique religion in the history of the planet, even to this day. It is a personal religion. It is about a personal relationship with a deity that acts as a lawyer pleading your case to the one ultimate God, Yahweh. 
the living God of Adam and Abram and Moses, the Creator who was and is and will be the living God. As the Apostle John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus, Yahshua, Yahweh saves, was there at the time of original sin with Adam. At the time of the contract between God and a lowly group of nomads under Abram, when God chose his people, the Jews. This divine Jesus, Joshua, was there when God rescued the lowly Jews from a Pharaoh who no longer remembered Joseph of the robe of many colors. This Jesus was present on Mount Sinai when God handed down the law to Moses and helped to set up the special tribe, the Levites, the priestly tribe, who had no territory in Israel, but held the role of the go-betweens from the Jewish people to God. This Jesus, then, was present when the priest offered up the first fruits of the harvest, the best lambs, and other sacrifices to God. Of course, these sacrifices were intended to thank God for blessing and to ask forgiveness of sin. And this man, who was deity, Jesus, then became a most holy sacrifice himself, for the forgiveness of all sin from Adam through Simon Peter to the unborn future generations. A one-time sacrifice so perfect that it needed to be done only once. Thus forth, one needed only to believe on Jesus, believe and accept what his gift was, and your sin or your misdeeds or errant thoughts were forgiven. It's an amazing concept, astonishing, so remarkable that it takes time to appreciate the gift in full. Indeed, it was Paul in 54 AD, some 22 years after the death of Jesus, who figured out that Jesus' real gift was to unleash, to release the believer from the onerous Jewish law. By the old rules, every move and thought was measured against the 613 Jewish laws. This was how one got to heaven. But by the new rules of Jesus, as realized by Paul in Romans in the 4th and 5th chapter, faith alone saves the believer and gives entrance into heaven. But belief is a difficult thing for humans. The human response to the message of Jesus is skepticism and misunderstanding. Christianity, a personal religion, a personal relationship with a deity, is something that is hard to accept. It's you and God, not you and the Levite and God, not you and the king of your country and God, not you the priest and God, not you your pope and God, but this simple message by 1517 got lost in the institutionalization of the Roman Catholic Church. By 1517, the Roman Catholic Church had become big, really big. Now, man loves to believe that big is better, or build back bigger, as uh, our current president says, is better. Bigger warriors are better, yet David killed Goliath. Bigger countries are better, yet Rome fell to a rabble of migrating uh, uh, heathens coming south from France. Big government is better, 
Yet the Soviet Union fell to a small group of grandmothers standing up to the Red Army in front of the Politburo in Moscow. Or how about the concept of big federal mortgage companies are better? But in 2008, they failed and brought down the U.S. economy. Too big to fail. Too big to fail. Big is not better. Christ taught that small is often better than big. And so Jesus has a one-on-one relationship. Certainly he did with his pals, the apostles. They hung out together, shared meals, shared experiences, and small stories on how to live life. Now the New Testament comes across as a movable feast from the wedding where Jesus turned water into wine to the Last Supper. It was a fellowship of celebration on the new way of doing things that was transmitted from person to person. This is the Dr. William Summer, uh, Summer's Christmas radio show, folks. You've come to expect it every year, where we have been discussing the celebration of Christmas, which is to say the Mass of Christ, the Eucharist of Christ's Last Supper, or the reaffirmation of faith with this religious ceremony. Stay tuned as we will return right after these important messages. Now, by 1517, the message of Jesus of Nazareth had become a puzzle and a conundrum. Pope Leo X had transformed Christ into a big and corrupt church in which priests were intermediaries, that is to say, lawyers for the rabble of Christendom. The church had worked out a deal that if a person merely paid enough, they were assured a place in heaven. These pardons or tickets to heaven were called indulgences. Of course, the money was for a good cause. It was to pay for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and of course to pay off some bribes and pork projects. You see, Rome was Washington, D.C. of the time. Now, the priests had become the Levites of biblical Israel. They stood between man and God. They underscored, this was underscored by the fact that they controlled the Bible, which was written only in Latin and Greek and not in the language that the people spoke. But on October the 31st, 1517, an intense young German priest, Martin Luther, wrote to the Pope by way of Albrecht, the Archbishop of Mainz, protesting the sales of indulgences. He reasoned in his 95 theses, which were posted on the door of his Wittenberg church, that heaven could not be sold by the church, that justification or entrance to heaven was by faith of the believer alone. The only intermediary between the believer and God was Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross put him as the advocate or lawyer who would argue forgiveness of sins before the living God of the Jewish Old Testament. And Martin Luther cited Psalms, Romans, Galatians, the book of Hebrews as his evidence. His arguments came from Scripture. Martin Luther believed the clear message of Jesus had become distorted. Now, Leo X initially ignored Martin Luther and dismissed him as a drunken German who will sober up and change his mind. But the clarity of the idea caught on. Martin Luther continued to speak out from the pulpit and convert believers with his clear logic, and the Reformation began. In January 1521, Leo X excommunicated Martin Luther. Later that year, he held a trial in Worms, Germany, 
and Luther was declared an outlaw. His literature was banned, and it became a crime for anyone in Germany to give Luther food or shelter. If a person would happen to kill Luther, the church certified that it would have no legal consequences. That's amazing. The Catholic Church in 1521 actually issued the equivalent of a Muslim fatwa. On his return from Wittenberg, Luther magically disappeared. He was initially presumed dead, but actually was hidden by Frederick III, King of Saxony and Wartburg Castle. Over the next year, the industrious Luther translated the New Testament from Greek into German. He also wrote doctoral letters attacking the sales of indulgences. And in September 1522, Luther's German translation of the New Testament was published, igniting the spirit of rebellion against the ruling order. The rebel Martin Luther steadfastly actually wished to conserve the good Catholic past and simply return the church to its best values through Christ. And as with all revolutions, there are opportunists, ones who take advantage and try to grab power. These are the ones who create a crisis then promise to fix the problem that they themselves created. If the people would just give them a little more power, a little more authority. In short, those who worship big government and big brother. In 1521, these opportunists were the Zurichau prophets. Nicholas Storch, Marcus Stobner, and Thomas Munzer from Zwickau, Germany, traveled to Luther's hometown of Wittenberg and attempted to establish a theocracy. They claimed to be directly communicating with the Holy Spirit. They used fear by claiming that end times were upon Germany, and they espoused equality and destruction of the old order. And the priests in the upper classes were harassed and often killed. The Zwickau prophets taught a classless society with shared goods, communism, if you will. Now, in recent history, this appealing but disastrous philosophy was practiced by Stalin, Mao, Castro, and in Venezuela, Cuba, and Zimbabwe. In all cases, the power flows to a big central government. Innovation and wealth is suppressed, and in time, there is poverty of the masses. Socialism promises shared wealth, but delivers shared misery. Now, Martin Luther understood this, and he came out of hiding in March of 1522 and gave eight daily sermons condemning the Zwickau prophets and had them thrown out of Wittenberg. But they continued elsewhere in Germany, creating a rebellion known as the Peasants' War, which was defeated in Frankenhausen in 1525, the great slaughter of peasants. History teaches revolution against existing order results in worsening or bettering society. In 19th century France, 20th century Russia, China, and Cuba, society celebrated, but the people were fooled. These revolutions worsened the condition of society. All of these revolutions were led by high-sounding but godless leaders somewhat similar to Nancy Pelosi and uh, AOC. But in stark contrast is Martin Luther's Reformation of the 16th century and the American Revolution of the 17th century. 
Here, the leaders were God-fearing and relentless in their personal study of the Christian Bible. All of these leaders had faith. Martin Luther, Luther gave three reasons for opposing the peasant movement. First came from Romans 13, which says, God picks the authorities accepted. Second, the acts of the peasants violated the Ten Commandments. And third, the leaders uh, Luther recognized as cloaking their power grabs and terrible deeds by pretending it was part of the gospel. <laughs> Not too dissimilar from our leaders today. No, oh, exactly the same. Yeah, they're clothing their uh, their power grabs and violations of our liberties in lofty terms of, quote, following the science, and then drape themselves in the American flag. It's it's shameless, yep. frankly. And then uh, not calling you, telling you that it's your patriotic duty, as you heard from Joe Biden's speech, uh, to get your shot. It is your patriotic duty that you can only be recognized as a patriot if you do so. Exactly. So the Reformation message was that the full contract through Jesus was extremely simple. The believer had to simply fully believe in Christ. Sounds easy, but even in today's many churches, they add a little, faith is not enough. You've got to do some acts and deeds like tithing or confession or regular church attendance and the like. You are just joining us. We've been discussing the celebration of Christmas, Christ's Mass, which is to say the Mass of Christ, the Eucharist of Christ's Last Supper, or the reaffirmation of faith with this religious ceremony. Although Christmas is both burdened and benefited by the focus on the birth of Christ and gift exchanges, Christmas ultimately focuses on the gift from Christ to the believers. This has led to the statistic that 96% of Americans celebrate Christmas. It is, as stated, a celebration of the ceremony called the Mass. Exactly. And the summary of the 1520s was that Martin Luther rediscovered the Bible, the gospel, the uniqueness of Christianity, that the reward of heaven is given in exchange for faith alone. The Christians don't have to make a payment to the church for indulgences. The Christians did not get to heaven by acts such as obeying the laws of man, but by faithful study of the word of God, the Bible. This faith leads to love and patience as exemplified by Jesus. True faith affects the day-to-day -day acts of the believer. And Luther stressed that this conversion could not be forced at the tip of the sword, as Islam does. Luther stressed that Christianity is about liberty and free choice given by God. He believed freedom and liberty are gifts from God. Now, the Mass of Christ, then, is in part to remind us that freedom was given by God, and freedom is God's idea. Because Jesus was not a martyr. A martyr dies involuntarily as a victim. But Jesus chose to be a sacrifice for God and placed himself between man and God to become man's lawyer, man's advocate. And that's one of the reasons why we have crucifixes absolutely uh, everywhere. I do want to... Uh, say something with this particular year. Uh, Dr. Summers uh, did something very special for a mutual friend of ours. And in fact, uh, her name was Judith. And uh, Judith, I think, has given me um, my uh, greatest uh, Christmas present that I could possibly have. And that's a gold cross that she had just for me. In addition, uh, Dr. Summers' second 
greatest Christmas gift of the year, which, of course, is his wonderful fruitcake from uh, Corsicana, <laughs> Texas. So I want to thank you, Dr. Summers, for what you did for Judith, uh, what you did for her family, and uh, what you would, again, do for all of us. Now, we're going to go into this next part, and uh, we do want to uh, tell you, or I do want to tell you that this is my most favorite part. This it literally is just like an open commentary on the courageousness of uh, Dr. Summers and the truth that he brings every single year. On September 11th of 2001, remembered as 9-11, there was an open attack by Islamists on the United States, and it was a rude awakening for most Americans. To this day, Americans are poorly informed about Islam. Most believe that 9-11 was the work of some misguided radical extremists within Islam who were simply crazy. Many Americans believe that this was the first conflict between America and Islam, where in fact the first conflict with Islam was encountered in 1785 when John Adams and Tom Jefferson had an honest disagreement over the demands by a Muslim uh, emissary demanding extortion money for not attacking American ships in the Mediterranean. Now, the sophisticated European nations of 1785 paid extortion to protect their shipping. John Adams felt it was more sensible to pay the extortion to the Muslims, who had, since 1776, taken American ships in the Mediterranean, sold the cargo, and sold the American sailors into slavery. But Tom Jefferson felt it was more honorable to simply raise a navy and fight them. Famously, Adams was to remark, we ought not to fight the Muslims at all unless we are determined to fight them forever. Now, Muslim apologists like to point out that the vast majority of the 1.3 billion Muslims are gracious and peace-loving people. This may be so, but the true believers of Islam are anything but peace-loving. The true believers actually read and act on the principal writings of Islam. Since the time of Muhammad, the principal challenge and offense to Islam is Christianity and Judaism. Islamic states, like communists and democrats, will not allow equal coexistence with a Christian community. While Christianity celebrates freedom of choice and accepts the risk that man may choose evil, Islam is Arabic for submission. Christianity is well suited for the development of democracy as free thought, commerce, and value uh, of prosperity is encouraged. Prosperity is the focus of, of a true Christian nation, but we've strayed away from true Christianity. Islam is the mirror image of Christianity and the mirror image of prosperity. Other than oil exporting nations, Islamic nations are pockets of poverty. Existence and subsistence is the focus of most of its inhabitants. Look at, for example, the now poverty-struck Afghanistan done within only a few months after the Taliban takeover. Unbelievable. They're running around hat in hand asking for food to support them through this winter and stop mass starvation uh, under Taliban rule. Well, of the small wars throughout the globe, Islamic forces are quite often on one side and occasionally on both sides. 
Islam claims to be a religion of peace, but on examination, it is a warring faith. The phrase Islamic radical Islamist or Islamic extremist is at best naive, and at worst a purposeful deception projected and fostered by the very same Islamists. The correct term for violent Islamist is an Islamic fundamentalist or an orthodox Muslim. By this, it is meant that violent Islamists sincerely study the foundations of their religion, and they do not make up the violent jihadist attitude towards non-believers. Violence towards non-believers is a part of the founding documents of Islam. So the violent Muslim is actually an orthodox Muslim. Now, Islam was founded by a human in, 16, in 610 named Muhammad. He is revered and claimed to be the true prophet of the one God named Allah. The holy text of Islam is not singular. It is not a single Bible. Rather, the Quran is 114 chapters called surahs. The Quran is the highest authority in Islam as it is believed to have been dictated directly by Allah and delivered to the prophet Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. But there are also the hadiths, which mean roughly oral traditions. These are the sayings and actions of Muhammad as recalled by those who rode with him and knew him. These oral traditions were collected into hadiths. There isn't just one hadith. There are six major collections of these sayings of Muhammad. But the most important is the Bukhari hadith, and it is the cornerstone of the Sunni Muslim division of Islam, which is 85% of the world's Muslims. Between the Hadiths and the Quran, all aspects of the Muslim life are determined. Unlike the New Testament, which was completed within a generation of Christ, uh, the Hadiths were not contemporaneous to Muhammad. Indeed, the Bukhari Hadith was written 230 years after the death of Muhammad in 632. Even a shallow study of the passages of the Quran revealed the violent nature of the belief system. No less than 11 passages in the Quran instruct Muslims to kill and terrorize infidels. 11% of the Bukhari Hadith are devoted to holy violence against non-believers. Indeed, killing of infidels guarantees the true believer of Islam a place in paradise, unless, of course, you're a woman. Then it gives you a choice of male friends or relatives that could be admitted to heaven. This is the Dr. William Summers Christmas Time radio show, folks, where we've discussed the Mass of Christ, this religious ceremony from which the word Christmas is derived. It is a reaffirmation of our faith in Christ. The Mass of Christ is a practice that has profoundly changed world history. The laws of nature dictate that for every action, there is a reaction. For every up there is a down. 9-11 woke Christian America to the fact that there is a force opposed to the existence of our Christian faith. If you just joined us, we explored the meaning of Christmas. 96% of Americans celebrate Christmas. But as of 9-11, America began to wake up to the fact that half of the world practices Islam. As a Christian nation that celebrates Christmas, Americans must understand that they are considered infidels by those Islamists who are intense about their Muslim faith. From its roots, Islam is violently and repressively intolerant of every other religion. 
Yeah, Muhammad personally led at least 27 bloody expeditions into the Saudi Arabian desert. His followers were sent into many more raids and conflicts. Violence, coercion, bribes, deception, theft, terror, and assassination are the means by which Muhammad spread his belief system. Infidels were converted at the tip of the sword or even beheaded. Their women and children were taken for slaves. Now, Muhammad's very first revelation from Allah occurred in 610 A.D., and some of these revelations were grand mall seizures. By 622, Muhammad and his followers were unwelcome in Mecca. They moved 210 miles north to an an oasis uh, by the name of Yathrib, which was settled by Jewish refugees who had fled the Romans in the second century. Now, Muhammad learned Judaism and Christianity in Yathrib. He was astonished that the Jews did not immediately convert to the faith that he was forming. As Muhammad's forces and power grew from caravan raids, one group of Jews was expelled from Yathrib, and the town was renamed Medina, which is Arabic for the city. In 627, after the Second Battle of Medina, Muhammad's troops turned against the Jews, and they beheaded all the male Jews and sold their women and children into slavery. Now, assassination is a favorite tool of Muhammad. Paradoxically, assassination was responsible for the delay in the actual writing of the Quran. Muhammad died in 632. His successor, the Caliph Osman, began working on putting the Quran into writing, but he was assassinated by his soldiers, and the Quran was thus put together by the third Caliph, Uthman of Egypt. By then, the memorized forms of the Quran were somewhat chaotic, so Uthman ordered a synthesized Quran to be created from five reliable people who had memorized the Quran. All other forms were ordered, burned, or destroyed. Now, some of these have actually survived, showing that there are marked deviations in various forms of the Quran. But recordings of the traditions of the Hadith was also delayed. The fourth caliph, Ali ibn Abdi Talib, and I'm butchering that. That's okay. But uh, he recorded the first Hadith, but he was in assassinated and it didn't get completed. And there's still serious contradictions within the Quran and the Hadith, but the pragmatic solution of the Islamic scholars is the principle of aberration. And what that means is if they know when something was said by Muhammad, the thing that came later erases the thing that was said before. So you have earlier you know, poems of Muhammad that say, uh, honor the people of the book, meaning Christians and Jews, and later sayings from Muhammad saying, chase him down and kill him. And so <laughs> the abrogation uh, principle says your job is to chase down Jews and Christians and kill them. Now, the mystery of the mass of Christ is the fundamental difference between Christianity and Islam. Christian faith leads to action, and the faith is entirely voluntary. 
For Islam, conversion can be forced. Now, the true believer of Islam must perform the five pillars. The first is the shahadat, which is to say in Arabic, there is only one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. The second pillar is a ritual prayer, which one says five times a day while laying prostrate on a prayer rug pointed towards Mecca. The third pillar is charitable giving, which is zahath, but you only give to the poor Muslims. The Christians need not apply for Muslim charity. The fourth pillar of Islam is the observation of the month of Ramadan, which consists of daytime abstinence from food or sex. Is this a, is this a full month, Ramadan? Yeah, it's it's almost a full it, month. Do they use the do they use a different calendar, obviously, than we do, right? I'm not fully informed of okay. that. All right. Sorry but that. after dark, there are no prohibitions on food or sex, and so oftentimes in Ramadan, Muslims will gain weight. <laughs> the, oh. fi- the fifth pillar is the Hajj, which is a pilgrimage to Mecca, and that oh. trip is required at least once in a lifetime. Islam is a religion of a state that has a strong man at its helm. It's best suited for dictators and despots. Indeed, Islam appears closely related to communism, more closely related to communism than to democracy. And Allah is not the same entity as the God of the Jews and the Christians. I want to say something real quick here. Last last week there was a uh, picture of uh, a number of uh, Muslims celebrating in the Gaza Strip, but you've been there, of course, Dr. Summers. I've been in Israel and uh, at the edge of the Gaza Strip. And you know where Israel uh, you know, runs up against it, where the Jewish people are separated from the uh, Muslims who are there, and they were having a, a Muslim celebration in the Gaza Strip, and none of the people were masked, not one of them. <laughs> that would be typical. Now, an often uh, repeated phrase by Muslims is the phrase Allah Akbar. And they will tell you that means God is great. But in Arabic, the word for great is kibar, not Akbar. Akbar means greater. So Allah Akbar means my God is greater. So if they just killed you and yell Allah Akbar, they means I... You know, my God is greater than yours. Why? Because I just killed you. Now, Muhammad himself noted that Allah was greater because he wasn't restricted like the Jewish God, who must be good and consistent and truthful. But Allah is more powerful than Yahweh because he could be evil, he could be inconsistent and deceptive. So therefore, he was more powerful. And Allah was greater than the God of the Jews and the Christians. So the question is, Who is Allah? Now, some believe that a 12-inch oval black balsa uh, lava stone known as the moonstone is Allah. Wow, that's Allah right there. Yeah, and it is a revered object that sat among 360 pagan idols in Mecca at the time of Muhammad. Literally worshiping the devil. Yeah, and uh, they are in a uh, building called the Kaaba, or the Cube. Now, Muhammad's family was in charge of four idols in the Kaaba, and the largest was the moon rock, or Allah. 
According to legend, the stone was dazzlingly white when it fell to earth at the time of Adam and Eve, but turned black because of the sins absorbed over the years. Totally made up. The stone was given to Abram by the archangel Gabriel, who placed it then in the Kaaba for Muhammad. And in 630, when Muhammad conquered Mecca, two years before his death, he destroyed all of the pagan idols in Mecca with the exception of the black stone. And so the name of the black stone is Allah. So when faithful Muslims pray towards Mecca five times a day, specifically they pray towards the Kaaba, which houses the black stone at the center of the Grand Mosque. So it appears likely that Allah is not the living God of the Jews and Christians. No, Allah is the moon God of the Arabs, which was actually worshipped in Jericho at the time when Joshua and the Israelis conquered Jericho. The uh, symbol of Jericho was the, uh, the sliver moon, as is the uh, symbol of Muslim states. So everything comes around, goes around. Now, Muhammad established three tactics for dealing with infidels. The first is takija, which means basically to lie or deceive, and kitman, which means to hide or disguise. And the final strategy is atija, which means caution. In other words, you don't let your opponents know what you're up to. And they give a uh, funny little story of a man who purchased a parrot at auction at a very high price. And after completing the deal, he asked the auctioneer, boy, I sure hope this parrot is smart and can talk. And the auctioneer said, well, you ought to know because you were bidding against the parrot. <laughs> and that is their lesson on how to uh, accomplish a tija, caution. Don't tell things out loud that can be used against you. So the thing is, when uh, Muslims are in minority and disadvantaged, they use these tactics of tatija, kitman, deception, and atija, which is caution. But once they get in power, the Muslims uh, will establish an Islamic state with the full implementation of the principles of Islam. And uh, in this way, they're kind of like communists. Uh, they ruthlessly execute their opposition. So in modern times, we've seen this takeover in Iran, Afghanistan, Somalia, and Lebanon. So one must be quite careful. Now, when apologists deny that Islam was violent, uh, by quoting peaceful lines from the Koran, they are using takija, they're prevaricating, they're changing topics. They're not telling the full truth about how the later verses in the Quran say to be evil and violent towards Christians and Jews. They'll then turn the topic and talk about how bad the Crusaders were. But history records that the Crusaders were actually in response to the excesses of Islam. For example, in the 8th century, the Muslims crucified 60 Christian pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And uh, they sort of made a hobby of harassing, robbing, and killing Christians trying to go to the Holy Land. Looks like they never got rid of that hobby. No. 
And so the Crusades were actually a response to recurring incursions by the Muslims into Europe as far as Vienna in the east and into central France from the south and even all of the Iberian Peninsula, in other words, Spain, was under Muslim control at one time. So the Crusades were a response to atrocities committed in the name of Allah. Now, there were seven Crusades between 1098 and 1250, and it was almost like a UN effort. Its intent was to push back the aggression of Islam and provide safety for pilgrims. There were brief independent Christian kingdoms established in Antioch, Jerusalem, and Rhodes. But these were not conquered areas. Uh, They were simply safe havens for Christians. Contrary to Muslim propaganda, little or no attempt was made to convert Muslims into Christianity. Rather, the Christian kingdoms were islands of religious tolerance in a sea of Muslim intolerance. So like the islands of UN Blue Helmet security throughout the world, the effort breaks down over time because the nations begin to bicker with themselves. So uh, we're kind of at the end of our time together. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it's been all too short, quite frankly. <laughs> well, as always, Dr. Summers, we appreciate uh, you very, very much. Uh, in doing all of this, uh, I'm going to just go ahead and you know take the last uh, part of, of all this. We are going to play some Christmas music yeah, uh, to please. round off the hour. Uh, some of my favorites and you know some of your favorites as well. Uh, we've uh, had uh, Luciano Pavarotti, Pani Sangelicus, which is one of my favorites. Um, the true Christian believer has a personal relationship with the living God through Jesus, which requires faith. This faith then leads to careful study of the Bible an adoption of the ways of Christ. These ways include conversion by free will, a central theme of freedom, love toward God, self, and neighbors of all types, the importance of truth, a belief in the self-sacrifice, self-reliance, and hard work, nonviolent conversion of the world, and in difficult or compromising times, a focus on heaven rather than worldly matters. This, of course, has been Dr. William Summers wishing you (laughs) – I'll let you say it, Dr. Summers. Yes, a very, very merry little Christmas. And uh, to all you infidels, a wonderful, happy Christmas and a prosperous New Year. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Summers, for being here. A little Andre Ryu, Panis, uh, excuse me, uh, Andrea Bocelli, Panis Angelicus, wishing you the very best of Christmas here on this Christmas Day. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And a complete replay of all this uh, will be played again on New Year's Day uh, as well as uh, Christmas doesn't officially uh, finish up until the uh, Three Kings uh, holiday. Take a listen. One of the most beautiful voices uh, in the world, Panis Angelicus.
Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices For yonder breaks A new and glorious morn Fall on your knees Oh, hear the angel voices Oh, now was born Oh night divine Oh night Oh night Oh, no. Nah.